From Hollywood, the dating capital of the world, in color, it's The Dating Game. And here's the star of our show, and your host, Jim Lyon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Glop Culture is brought to you by Hillsdale College's Constitution 101 course. This election season, you're hearing a lot of candidates talking about the Constitution. But if you're like many Americans, you may not know the true importance of the Constitution and the rights and liberties it provides. That's why Hillsdale College has made their Constitution 101 course available to everyone online for free. Because every one of our listeners owes it to yourself to learn about and study the Constitution. After all, we can't have free enterprise without freedom. You can sign up for free today. Once you start the course, you'll receive a new lecture every week to watch on demand, along with readings, discussion boards, and more. Nearly a million people have taken this course and given it rave reviews. Sign up for Constitution 101 for free at hillsdale.edu slash ricochet. That's hillsdale.edu slash ricochet. Our thanks to Hillsdale College for sponsoring Glop Culture, and here we are. Uh, this is the March uh, March Glop Culture podcast. I'm John Podhortz in New York, somewhere uh, skiing in shorts in Lake Tahoe is Jonah Goldberg. Hello. Hi, Jonah. Hey, and uh, and uh, here somewhere else in New York, uh, not skiing but probably wearing shorts. Always is Rob Long, always wearing shorts. Uh, John, how are shorts. you? I'm exactly. well. How are you? But the, the, the tapered cargo—that's the fashion. Wait, so Jonah, is it warm enough for you to wear shorts? I mean, are you? I mean, are you doing that? Are you that I guy? Not, I am. I am not that guy. I am. Um, I I prefer to wear culottes yeah, and um and and a giant American flag cape when I go skiing. <laughs> uh, and that, right. And it it, it really it, it kind of works. No, look, I like it's enough. <laughs> it's funny, you know. Um, my wife had been wanting to go to Lake Tahoe for years. We went last year and we loved it. My reluctance was always that I thought it was such a cheesy place because the only thing I knew about Lake Tahoe was that the end of the dating game, the prize was a <laughs> oh, wonderful wow. for two in sunny Lake Tahoe, sure. and I realized that that's the Nevada side of the lake, um, and the California right. side of the lake is a little. Less cheesy, although the, I, from what I've seen on the Nevada side, it's very nice, too. This was also 30 years ago. Maybe there has been a boom. But it's really – it's a beautiful part of the country, and it's one of these parts of the country where, like, if you're not at a high elevation, it's warm and sunny. And and then you can, like – you know, you can go from right. sitting out in the sun to skiing in 10 minutes. It's really amazing. Speaking do we have, of wait, the, do we, do we have time just, for – can I just give you a quick dating game anecdote? Oh, I have one, too, but you start. Really? That's weird. All right. Uh, a friend of mine, um, when he was starting out in Hollywood, this is in the early 70s, he was a producer on The Dating Game. And in The Dating Game, in the old days, they actually had chaperones. You, you, you were not you, – you, it wasn't like these two unmarried couple uh, – an unmarried couple were sent off to share a hotel room. They were sent off separate hotel rooms, and part of the deal was that they were accompanied by a chaperone to make sure there was no uh, you know, midnight bed hopping. And um, and for some reason, my friend Bob took this very seriously, and um, he he actually escorted the couple back to their rooms. They're on the same floor, but separated, and stood there 
as they went to bed. And the guy kept saying, to him, like, come on, man, really? Really? You're doing this? Really? And he said, yes, I am doing this. And he stood there, and about you know ten minutes later, of course, both of the, the couples, they, you know, they, 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 both members of the couple left their hotel room and were creeping to each other's door. And Bob was right there to say, "Ah, ah, no, that's not the deal." Isn't that weird? That's that's, that's, that's how a, long ago it was in 1973 a, or 74. That is a beautiful story. You know, my dating game story involves a friend of mine named Hugh Fink, who was a stand-up comic, who was one Great of the three guys on the dating game. On the new dating dating game, which came out oh. in 1987, and um, you know, where the orgy the host, was mandatory. Exactly, <laughs> exactly so, right, right. So, when the host, who I think was still Jim Lang, said to him, "Now, Hugh Fink, uh, I see here that you uh, you are a comedian or something like that," and he said, "Yes, I specialize in Waldheimers." And Jim Lang said. Waldheimer's, what's that? And he said, well, it's the condition where you get so old that you forget that you're a Nazi. <laughs> and this actually ended up on the dating game. And Hugh you know, took a clip of it, and he would show it in his stand-up stand That is a black past. With the expression, with this kind of like shocked, horrified, you know, what on earth is going on here expression <laughs> on the face of Jim Lang, you know, whose hairpiece started to fall sideways. Now Walk we need to say we need to say to our younger listeners that uh, Kurt Waldheim at the time was the president of Austria, and there was a big uh, scandal because he suddenly remembered or was suddenly reminded, I think, that he had been a Nazi, which I think right. goes without saying. Way, was not just the president of Austria; he had been Secretary General of the oh, UN. Right. I forgot right. that. Yeah, he, he, he had a, he had Austria. extra accolades. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And, and, and of course, then now the he, then he. Uh, yeah, the minute he was uh, discovered to be a past Nazi, Austria put him on the ten shilling bill or something. Exactly, <laughs> they're, they're extra it, honors for him. My understanding That's is that it actually these revelations uh, that he was about his—I think it's not just his Nazi, but his SS past—were actually made, ironically enough, on the dating game when they asked <laughs> him, "What are your, you know, what are you into?" <laughs> and he just sort of and blurted out, the, "Rounding up I'm the Jews." I am for one world. Gov- <laughs> I'm for one world government and rounding mm-hmm. up the Jews. A thousand year Reich. Yeah. Um, okay, so with the obligatory Hitler reference taken care of, uh, what happens now, John? Well, um, Jonah, you know, this is an election year, as you know, uh, and there's a great controversy this year in the election year. But, I, you know, I believe that you were fundamental in starting a grassroots campaign for um, the – for the leading figure that I think might just take it all. And I was hoping that you could really inform us about the origins, the meaning, and the and, and really the prospects of, of what so, is sometimes known on Twitter as SMOD16. Uh, yes, okay. So uh, SMOD2016, I believe, is the Twitter handle for uh, the only candidate I have ever endorsed. Uh, and SMOD is, of course, stands for the sweet meteor of death that the will, in a planetary, it will, it will, upon collision with planet Earth, not only reduce all income inequality in the United States, but end immigration in all its forms and unify the entire Republican Party in the sweet bliss of eternal death. And, um... So smart. You know, it just might work. <clears throat> Maybe I'm crazy, <laughs> but I think it just 
might work. Wait a minute. I have a couple questions, though, Jonah. Yes. Where is the sweet meteor of death on the subject of Common Core? That's very important to me. Common Core will be totally abolished. All right, I like that. What about the IRS? It's really good because, you know, the IRS is gone. The income tax is gone. Wow. Okay. This wiped out. ISIS is totally wiped out under SMOD. I'm um, willing to say right now. I need to, I need facts. I'm, I'm a fact based voter. I like to, to like find facts and policies. So I'm not really ready yet to to endorse SMOD, but I definitely I definitely am intrigued by what SMOD has to the, say. The, Kevin Williamson, who's under siege these days, my colleague in National Review, um, he and I had a long debate about Chitulu, who is of course the Lovecraftian. Uh, titan of the old universe, uh, or the old—I can't remember what they call them, the old one. Sort of the demon old gods, god, right? the old gods. Rain agony, right? Will rain agony and horror on planet Earth um, for all eternity, so that the living actually envy the dead. And my view was is that you know, at National Review, we can't be in favor of outright endorsing evil. And um, and besides, you can't trust Cthulhu the way you can trust Smod. Because SMOD is governed, you know, just look at SMOD's record. Um, SMOD is governed purely by the Newtonian laws of physics. Much like Margaret Thatcher, this meteor is not for turning. And, um, and we are all, you know, it's about the rule of law. We're all equal in the eyes of, uh, you know, in, under the There's something of attractive with that, yeah. laws of the universe. But, but listen, but listen, I just want you to know, Cthulhu is, is out of the race. Uh, because um, Alexander Petri, uh, P-E-T-R-I, who I believe is pronounced Petri, the humor columnist of the Washington Post and one of the breakout media stars of this year, uh, today received the endorsement of Cthulhu for Donald Trump. Um, and it is online at the Washington Post. Uh, I would just like to read a, a little uh, bit of it because I think it's 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 really good. Uh, in him, uh, Cthulhu writes, I, I recognize a kindred spirit. I admire <laughs> the tremendous obelisk he has constructed to mar the skyline of New York City with its vast dolomite shadow. We share an affinity for the huge, the mammoth, the gargantuan, the nightmarishly tremendous. My geometry is not of this puny world, just as his arithmetic is not of this world. And like me, he possesses the power to drive those around him to insanity. So I, I strongly recommend Googling Alexandra Petri, P-E-T-R-I, Washington Post, <clears throat> and, and today's date, and you can read in full the Cthulhu full. endorsement of Donald Trump. I, I, which I find that – can we just break character for a minute and say uh, I've never heard of this guy? I mean I naturally am suspicious. Uh, is there really a funny humor column to be found in – an American newspaper in 2016. Yes, and it, yes, and it is a she, uh, and she's 26 she. years old, um, and uh, she is uh, hilarious. I have to say, uh, came out of nowhere, as far as I can tell. She's been writing for the Washington Post for three or four years, and the paper was in such a slough of despond before Jeff Bezos of Amazon bought it that nobody even knew right. she was there. And now, you know, he's used various pieces of internet, you know, magic and sorcery. To uh, to push the paper's uh, presence online uh, forward, and so she is getting some of the attention that that she deserves. So I I, I, I do but remember strongly. that. Though. Remember in the remember in the olden times. In olden times, every daily newspaper had a humor columnist, right? I mean, San Francisco had Art Hoppy, 
He won the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell Baker, I, I in, in many ways in the New York Times was kind of a humor columnist, if not right. not Art yeah, Buckwald. labeled as such. Art Buckwald, remember Art Buckwald? Is, yes. uh, Syndicated yeah, so across the across the wrote world. humor for uh, thirty five years and um, managed. It was well, a he remarkable wrote... record because he wrote a humor column that was never funny for uh, forty years. I, I was going to say three he, times a week. I was going to say he wrote a humor column for thirty five years, but he was funny for twenty years. Uh, <laughs> he wrote some funny stuff, but I, I, but, but but what what happened to that? Why did that go? It went like everything else because two things happened. One was that nobody had any money to pay anybody with anymore. And the other is that they did readership surveys in the 1980s and 1990s and discovered that you know people only read the newspaper for the supermarket ads and nobody read anything. And they certainly didn't read the humor column. And when they read the humor column, they thought it was serious and they didn't know that anybody was joking. Speaking as a former newspaper humor columnist, I can tell you that you could write a humor column and then somebody would say something like, I don't know what you're talking about about this. Yeah, right, right. President. Yeah, that's right. There's uh, I no – I called I NASA and I discovered there's no meteor. Right, right. Well, isn't that right. – John, isn't that why you opted for um, calling the parody in the Weekly Standard parody? Yes. Because you didn't think anyone would understand it was parody otherwise? The first week that we we started the Weekly Standard in September of 1995, and we did these two parodies one week after the other, which were laid out to look very much like whatever it was that they were intended to copy. And people wrote us angrily saying, why are you publishing an article from the Washington Post and the Weekly Standard? <laughs> so literally had to- and if you're going to, why don't you cut it out neatly rather than having jaggedy edges? Yeah. So, <laughs> so we basically had to put the word parody at the top of the page. Yeah. That's like if, you go by a, if you go by a bucket at Home Depot, um, there's a giant like almost mural painting on the side. Uh, letting you know that children can drown in this bucket, and then it shows you this elaborate scenario where you know a kid walks up to the bucket, it's filled with water, and then falls in the bucket, and then can't get out of the bucket head first, can't get out of the bucket. Um, it just does just it put it this way: it all seems to fit with our current political system. Or, I mean, right. current well, political situation that you have to explain what a parody is by labeling it a parody, and you can't sell a bucket without warning people that if you stick your head in it, you're probably going to drown. I mean, I, I, I reminded some people the other day that in 1961, in Commentary Magazine, the magazine that I edit, the novelist Philip Roth wrote an essay, a famous essay called Writing American Fiction. And in this essay, he proposed the theory that uh, things in America had gotten so wild and crazy that one could no longer write uh, fiction because reality had gotten too weird. Okay, and he used the example of a of a, a, a murderer, the parents of a killer, and the parents of the kid that the killer had had killed, and how they ended up all going on TV together and going on a speaking tour together and how you, you know, you couldn't make this up and it beggars the difficulty of, you know, writing when this is what reality is. And that was 55 years ago. And now what, what, now what is one supposed to say? I mean, now in America, a reality TV star is about to get the nomination for, for a, a, you know, a leading presidential party. Isn't it possible this is just old man behavior on our part? 
You know, at a certain point, you become the thing. I can't believe it. Everything's uh, – look at it. We can't sink it any lower but of course we always can and there's always a, a trap door in the basement that goes to a sub basement you know you're never really at rock bottom um uh, jo- so that, uh, let's bring you back to the sh- to skiing in shorts jonah when you <laughs> see people skiing in shorts do you ever think to yourself i i wish i was that guy no i don't know where that con- that question actually comes from um well i think you know like you, you ever at? see you, you ever see somebody doing something like skiing in shorts which i think is weird because you got those big old boots but whatever or wearing something and you think god that i i could never pull that off i, I see that every day <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's not just uh, uh i see that in old men i see that in young men i see that you know i mean like i you see that all sorts of people, you know, but uh, it's, I mean, are, you, are you trying to get at the idea that somehow I'm a um, I'm a curmudgeonly old dude? No, 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 no. I, I, this is a genuinely honest question. I have only two genuinely honest questions in this entire podcast. That was one of them. Well, a genuinely know, honest uh, question, which is like, what isn't it? I mean, I do believe it is part of getting older. I do believe that. But the idea that you're like, well, I don't think I could really pull that thing off. I, that I, that I can't wear. I just have a slightly different take on this. Uh, Rolling Stone today has an interview with Albert Brooks, the comedian, writer, director, actor. Uh, it's the 25th anniversary of his uh, remarkably great movie, Defending Your Life. And it's a sort of an interview in which he talks about how he made the movie, how he got Meryl Streep to be in the movie, where he got the idea for the movie, which is you know about how uh, everybody lands in purgatory – uh, and has to spend a couple of days defending themselves against the charge that they spent their lives living blindly in fear rather than doing what you know what they ought to have done with the gifts that they were given um, and that movie, which is really uh you know over time has come to seem like one of the great American comedies, um does raise this question you know of you look back on your life and you think, were there things that you didn't do because you were just too scared to do them? And now you know that there was no reason to be scared and you could have just, you know, barreled through your anxiety and, you know, your life would have been enhanced if you had been able to do that. And it's, you know, in that sense, like all great comedies, it's, you know, it's thought provoking and, and kind of disturbing to, to reflect on. It's it's an old Zen it's an old Zen question is what would you do today if you were not afraid? And I think for Jonah, the answer is wear shorts and go ski. Yeah. So I, it's a, the reason why Rob keeps coming back on this, everybody is uh, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the, in the pre-show show, he came in while I was talking to John about how you, you can see on certain days at Lake Tahoe, people skiing in shorts, it's warm enough. And then Rob came in the middle and was like, Jonah, you ski in shorts. And I was like, yes, but he says, doesn't that look ridiculous with the boots and everything? And I said, yeah, but that's because I wear – it's okay because I wear a vest with no shirt on underneath, and that draws the eye away from the boots. And Rob was apparently so fascinated with this, he keeps trying to drag me back into talking about it in this thing. I am and, fascinated by it. Uh, um, you, uh, you also and, uh, said well, I, that you skied with a, with a cape with an American <laughs> flag on it. Yeah. Which yeah, well, raises the yeah. very well, on air. objection. Yeah. The Edna, the Edna, um, uh, the Edna Mode, uh, Edna Mode objection from the Incredibles that uh, you should not wear capes. 
<laughs> no cake. <laughs> right. Because you could get sucked but, into a plane and get killed. I just mean I'm just trying to like I'm just trying to I, 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 there is a point to this, and it really right. isn't. I'm not I'm not being facetious. I'm like th- th- there are people who wake up in the morning and say, "Oh, I'm going to go skiing." You know, it's got it's, it's like it's 60 degrees. It's warm enough for me to wear shorts, and then they put on shorts and they go skiing. Now, I would think even at 60 degrees, it's still snow. You're still going down a hill. It's still cold. You're going to be cold, but there are people for whom that would never occur, or, 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 or they already know that they don't care, or maybe they just right. don't feel or, cold. Or, I don't or feel, or I'm not used to cold. Or they're okay. so cocky about their, skill, about their skill at skiing, which I am most definitely not, that they think they don't have to worry about falling down or any of that kind of stuff. Um, I still <laughs> worry about falling down. Yeah. And you're still zipping through, but you're still zipping down a mountain um, at a certain speed. You know, you're like you're going. Fa- you're not. It's it's like you're going faster sometimes than riding a bike. So, I, it, to me, it feels like I want to. I want to know more about those people. What what? Because I am the kind of person that would say, yeah, I would love to wear shorts right now. But you know, I bet you by the time I get off the lift and I'm right at the top of the hill and I'm coming down, I'm going to be cold, and then it's too late. Well, I, well, I, I have, have this. Oh, sorry. I just want to try and tie these two things together because we were talking about the Zen thing about what you fear. And right. it's, it's a funny thing. You know, I turned 47 yesterday, two days ago. I can't remember now. Um, and uh, which makes me the spring chicken on this podcast, by the way. That's and true. Um, and uh, <laughs> you don't know your history. You kids don't know your history. <laughs> it took me until um, just a few years ago that to really sort of internalize an important lesson, which is that you shouldn't make any decisions that turning down something, turning down an opportunity solely because you're afraid is a bad idea. That doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to why you're afraid, right? I mean, uh, if you're afraid to jump out of right. a plane, uh, that your fear is telling you something smart, but you should investigate where that fear is. I agree. Is sort of coming from. And, um, that's a lesson that you know. I, I turned down, I think, some real opportunities when I was a younger pundit. You know, I you know for like TV stuff, I could have been hosting shows and all that kind of stuff. And I part of it was that I just I was afraid to become a TV guy, and I was afraid to mm-hmm. be that kind of guy. And then you know, and I'm not sure I didn't make the right decision in turning down some of that stuff. But I think you I think absolutely about those made. Kind of I think you absolutely made the right decision because uh, I won't name anybody in particular, but. I know several people who I think were, you know, intellectually uh, destroyed by the fact that they allowed themselves to become that guy, that TV guy. Uh, oh, I agree. TV, TV, and to a lesser extent, radio can really change the way people, way you think, and and not necessarily for the better. I think we I don't think need to. You mean the way? But, why? Because you think you're thinking shorter, or you're thinking I'm going to say something funny, and it doesn't really matter if it's valid or not, or. Well, I like everybody in this conversation knows people who are very much addicted to their celebrity, and um, and I think John Pedoritz, yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> and part of the problem is is that I think at some point you if I a- were addi- if I were addicted, <laughs> that's like that's like getting addicted to rot gut alcohol. That is that that would uh, that is not a wise addiction because you know it's not like it's not like my celebrity is high quality celebrity, but he, it's pretty goddamn second rate. If you know what I'm saying, <laughs> but it happens anyway. To um, go ahead. So I think that's one of the things that happens is that people become sort. I mean, and I've seen this firsthand with people I've been very close friends with or work with. You know, they become addicted to the need of being recognized in airports, and I think that it, it starts to sort of 
eat away at their objectivity when it comes to certain questions. And you see this very similar thing right now with a lot of some of them are friends of ours with this idea of access, which is somewhat different than celebrity, but it sort of works in the same centers of the brain. And this idea of wanting to be relevant and therefore you can't say bad things about Donald Trump because either your listenership or your viewership or uh, your your standing in certain quarters of the movement or, or whatever um, will be jeopardized. And you can see how it sort of eats away at some people. Um, but I also think that one of the reasons why TV – I used to say that TV makes you dumb. And I don't think that's really true anymore. I know too many smart people in TV that it's not true of. But what does happen, especially as you move higher and higher up, is that you have you get all of your research done for you prepackaged by other people. And you end up becoming one of these people who has to digest things very quickly right. um, into sound bites rather than thinking about them long term. And, and – um, and I think that's it's, it's the nature of the beast, and uh, you know it's not yeah. it's not immoral, it's not terrible, and there's some people who've kept their souls by and still become huge stars and all that. But then there are other people who um, I think have sold off their souls one piece at a time because of this. We're not going to say we're not going to say who they are, uh, but they're not no, but, Charles Krauthammer. That's no, right. Where, where do I where do I go to sell my soul off one piece at a time? But, but is there a <laughs> Because it's, it, I mean, I've been trying to sell it for a while. And I was once to buy it. <laughs> Actually, um, a friend of mine who's done a lot of television once said that the the, the worst thing that happens, it, it is like an addiction when you do it. Because, um, like an addiction, what happens is not that it incapacitates you, but how functional you can be. Yeah. Um, and so what he discovered was that uh, when he had said something on television that was wrong, factually wrong. Uh, it's made a mistake. It was, a, it was, but it was a kind of mistake where you don't. I mean, it, it just it's hard to. You just had a, you know, your brainwave or whatever what it was didn't work. But how absolutely inconsequential it was. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't get. He didn't have to apologize or correct anything. He didn't have to. He didn't get any really any letters. Nobody stopped him on the show. The front runner, and now he's the front runner for the Republican nomination. Well, what happens <laughs> but, is, that, um, yeah, exactly. What happens now, is that you feel bulletproof, and you realize, oh, it doesn't matter what I say. I get to say anything, and I think that's probably uh, – it's like heroin addicts. So heroin addicts always feel like, oh, you know, if I take this heroin, I can still do this stuff that I have to do. I just feel better doing it. So it is well, kind start of start microdosing LSD. Microdosing yeah, which I have not been able to do yet. I have, I, I have not been able to find it. You know. Now, I, by I'm the not, way, I, I, gentlemen, uh, the, the apotheosis of this trend is, is, uh, is the front runner for the Republican nomination I think is – is beyond question, but you know what else is beyond question? You know what else we need to talk about? We need to talk about Casper mattresses. You good, know, good, Casper. Good, a good night's sleep is the most important thing. The online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, as you know, I myself own two of them. Mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper has revolutionized the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, passing that savings directly to the consumer. Casper Mattress, resilience, long-lasting support of comfort, one-of-a-kind, new hybrid mattress combining premium latex foam with memory foam. Most mattresses can cost well over $1,500, but Casper Mattresses cost between $500 for twin-sized, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full-size, $850 for queen-size, $950 for king-size. Now, you understand 
consumers wonder how this is possible. It's completely risk-free. Free delivery comes in a box. You cut it open with a razor. takes five minutes, and you can return it within 100 days. Risk-free experience. Obsessively engineered mattress. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery, painless returns, made in America. And here's a special offer. Get $50 off toward any mattress. By visiting casper.com slash glop, use the coupon code glop at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com and the coupon code glop at checkout. We thank Casper Mattresses for sponsoring the Glop Culture Podcast. And I want you to know that the other day I bought a Casper mattress pillow. Not the mattress, but a pillow. It hasn't arrived yet. Next show, maybe I can report on the pillow. So, uh, But we do thank... Casper mattresses, and uh, one thing that we don't thank, or that I don't thank, is the fact that on Friday, a movie that cost $350 million and looks like the worst piece of garbage ever made is about to be released. That is Batman <laughs> versus Superman, and uh, as you know, I am not a huge fan of uh, comic book culture or comic books or the comic book movies, though I have... I, I think I, I kind of like uh, the Marvel, some of the Marvel movies, which I think are funny. Um, but Jonah, as as our resident comic book guy, uh, Ben Affleck <clears throat> as Batman, uh, where do you stand? I, I, I'm I'm resolutely opposed. Although the reviews seem to say that he's better than the Superman guy. Um, uh, but I, that's my problem with Ben Affleck is I can only ever see Ben Affleck. Um, but uh, I, I, variety write-up of the, you know, so the review of the reviews. I mean, have you seen it, John? You have not, right? No, no, I have not seen it. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, here's my prediction. It will, it'll, it'll still have a great box office. It'll, still, it'll make its money back. And um, and even people like me will end up having to see it, um, but uh, it's a shame because it's actually a fantastic storyline from the original Frank Miller um, comic. You know, it's, it's sort of it's sort of the heart of, of the whole gestalt of the of the Dark Knight series. And, and you you did like the, the 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 Nolan Dark Knight movies, right, John? I did, I did. Although I really didn't like Christian Bale. Whom I thought, you know, just uh, talk like this every time he was Batman, you know, like that. You know, he sounded like you know. Wow, he sounds, needed, sounds like Luke Jacoby. To gargle. <laughs> if only. You, if he sounded you, like Luke Jacoby, you know what he would have said? He would have said, "Joker, Cut sit the, down. Yeah. For God's sake, take the load um, off." Uh, but here's what I don't get: How come Superman doesn't just win totally because he's Superman? I don't. Because I get he's it. arrogant. Because he's arrogant. And the, I think I here's my prediction: is that the reason why this isn't going to doesn't it doesn't work as a movie is that you actually have you'd have to be loyal to the comic book, which turns Superman into kind of an arrogant prick um, who decides that he's going to be this essentially benevolent dictator um, and save humanity from themselves. And they don't want to ruin the brand for the movies. And so, like, one of the reviews I saw uh, said, oh, this basically boils down to a, you know, a big misunderstanding between Batman and Superman, which is not the case in the comic book. You know? And to reduce 
what is really kind of <laughs> wait a big misunderstanding. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I thought you said. No, oh, I thought you like said that thing. Oh, you didn't say that. Yeah. it's like it, it's like three's come. Company, but with superheroes, you know. And then Batman, <laughs> the Mr. Robot, came in. We were, we were, yeah, we were literally eating pie. We were actually eating pie in the kitchen. <laughs> I was rubbing an actual puppy's tummy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so I, that's I predict why the script doesn't work. But supposedly the visual effects are impressive and all that stuff, and yeah, so yeah. it's a shame. But, uh, listen, the only yeah. good thing about it is that it is a it is a war against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions industry because the actress cast as Wonder Woman, uh, who makes apparently a twelve minute appearance in the movie, is an Israeli named Gal Gadot. So, uh, so at least uh, Batman versus Superman uh, refuses to participate in the effort to boycott Israel. Um, and for that alone, it should maybe make a couple hundred million dollars, but I don't know if it should make eight hundred million dollars. But you know what? Maybe should make eight hundred million dollars is Harry's shoes. Shoes. Harry, Harry's shoes. Uh, Harry's Harry shoes. shoes. Excuse me. Harry's shoes is the store near my house where, where, I, where I bought shoes. Oh my God. Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm sorry about that. It's Harry's razors, of course. Harry's. No, you know, the Harry's people are saying to themselves right now that that's a diabolically brilliant idea. Yes, Harry's shoes. We can disrupt the shoe industry after they've already successfully disrupted the razor industry. And I'm sure you're wondering how does Harry's deliver a superior shave? They bought a blade factory in Germany, been grasping some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century. They cut out the middleman so they can offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore brands. Ship the blades right to your door, factory direct prices, and new orders in Harry's now come with their new Truman handle, featuring a rubberized non-slip grip that gives you extra control and is named after the president who recognized Israel, the first president to write Truman, Harry Truman, just to keep with the Zionist theme oh, here. Yeah, We've just also, to keep with it. Because we, we almost lost it? Is that your point? We've also improved the fitting where the blade cartridge attaches to the handle. They call it the pusher. Don't worry, though. The new handle is still compatible with the same German blades I've been making all along. The starter kit is just 15 bucks including the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. And as an added bonus, you can get five bucks off your first purchase with the coupon code GLOP. After using my code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just ten bucks. An entire month's worth of shaving. Shipping is free. It says in my script, talk about how annoying online shipping is when you have to pay more in shipping than you do in the actual purchase. And boy, is that annoying. Let's face it. you know, I... I, I have to say, I do this spot too. I did it last week on the flagship podcast, and I saw the same piece of copy. And I think that's not what they should be saying. I don't think. I mean, yeah, you're right. Shipping is pain in the neck, and it's free, and that's great. I think the real problem is that I, when I, you know, when you buy blades at this drugstore, you have to like it's behind plexiglass. You got to get the guy to come over and unlock it. It's just ridiculous. So totally, that to totally me ridiculous. is the worst. I don't know. They're they're trying to keep people from you know doing damage to what? each other. But you know, I some of these blades you you could barely you know you could, they barely can reach your face, much less you know some other part of anybody's anatomy. So uh, satisfaction is guaranteed. Go to Harry's.com and Harry's will give you that five bucks off if you type in our code GLOP with your first purchase. That's H A R R Y S dot com. 
Enter coupon code GLOP at checkout for five bucks off. Start shaving smarter today. And uh, I'm, I apologize uh, for mentioning uh, the shoe store, which, by the way, is kind of a pain in the ass shoe store. It's been there forever. And they're it is. And they're surly. It takes half an hour for them to come serve you. And so don't, you know, I, I, I'm not, this is like a negative ad because if you live on the Upper West Side, you go to Harry's Shoes anyway. So they don't need I don't think we have that many listeners on the Upper West Side. How do you know that? How do I you think know we that? don't. I think we don't. I, I think, think it's fair to say. No. Well, if we have three, know. that's more than I know. Yeah. Okay. That's, well, that is more than you know. <laughs> no. More Before than we get off now, Jonah. Forget Harry's shoes. Yes. Harry's shoes is on the East Coast. Jonah has been peripatetically wandering the south and southwest of the United States on his vacation with the fair Jessica and his beautiful daughter, and I assume uh, maybe not the dogs this time, but not just the, the but just three humans, and um, and he has been calling audibles on this trip, I believe. That's Making right. I, grand shifts in strategy at a moment's notice. So, what have you learned, Jonah? Um, I'm I, I reminded yet yet one more time how big this country is, which is a really great thing for people in my line of work to learn. Um, but um, we ended up we planned on only spending one day in Vegas, and we switched it because we didn't like our the service we had at our hotel uh, in Phoenix. And so we drove to Vegas early and spent uh, three or four nights at the beautiful Wynn uh, Encore Hotel. Oh, and, sure. and um, yeah, did no. You get, it was, uh, it was did you quite, go to the pool? We were at the pool. Oh, yeah, you know, it, you... It's, it's not quite the child-friendly hotel I would no. like it to be. No, the, um, the pool. The pool is famous for European-style bathing. Yeah, well, that. <laughs> but at least they have a sign sign up keeping you away from that. And um, oh and, yeah, like that you know, The funny thing is when I when I see signs for European style bathing, I think of really overweight sixty year old sunburnt German topless women. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think yeah. of you know the sort of late night yeah. Cinemax you know images no. that they want to conjure. But I, 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 yes, yeah, so, so like the phrase nude, 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 all nude can be ruined. These the of one word Albanians. <laughs> but go um, ahead. So I, I so I had two little vignettes that uh, were I saw thought sort of classically Vegas in a non obvious way. One was, um, you know the 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 air bridge that connects the various hotel. This was like between the um, the Wynn and the, the uh, Palazzo or the Venetian or whatever. You know you you, you walk on this bridge across the, the road. And during the day, they have these panhandling women there with their signs saying need help and all that. And you feel sorry for them, and that's fine. And uh, at night, I was crossing that, and this lady was who has been panhandling all day was packing up her stuff. And across from her was a guy playing the accordion for money, for tips on the street. And she reached into her pocket and threw him a nice tip. <laughs> from her, her earnings, which I, which I thought was sort of a great little scene. And then the other thing is, in sort of sort of putting the lie to some of the sort of Donald Trump's America stuff, um, we were walking along in the Venetian, you know, during, along the Grand Canal. Sure, <laughs> that's the a, indoor Grand Canal. Well, that's right. There was a gondola gondola going by, captained by a black guy singing Italian opera 
to Chinese tourists. And I was like, there you go. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's right. You're in Ersatz Venice. Yes, Ersatz Venice. Ersatz Opera Singer. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, and it's such a such a miracle of modernity. But anyway, so that was a good time. And now we're in Tahoe, which is lovely. I have a feeling that it's getting very uh, higher rent than ever because of all of the Silicon Valley millionaires who get second houses out here. Uh, um, but right. we've enjoyed ourselves. And that's about it. Can I, oh, uh, can I ask you, because you mentioned nude bathing and everything, I, I, I remembered this astounding passage that is the conclusion of Milan Kundera's Book of Laughter and Forgetting, one of the great books of the second half of the 20th century, uh, Czech uh, writer who was writing about the... the Wait, drain. are you going to read to us? I'm going to read a, just a short two-sentence thing, because oh. uh, the scene is a nude beach uh, in Czechoslovakia during, you know, during the communist era. And this, this is the conclusion of the book. A man with an extraordinary paunch began developing the theory that Western civilization was on its way out and we would be soon freed once and for all from the bonds of Judeo-Christian thought. And for the time being, those few feet of beach felt like a university auditorium. On and on the man talked. The others listened with interest, their naked genitals staring dully, sadly, <laughs> listlessly at the yellow sand. <laughs> that is that is the last paragraph of the book. Of I have now have to reread this book. I had <laughs> forgotten that. That's a yeah. great sentence. And uh, I was worried for a minute you're going to elevate the tone inadvertently of the no, God, no. podcast. No, but God, thank God, God you did I mean, not. He doesn't talk about his hands. He doesn't yeah. talk. There's no mention of hands or size of hands or right. Presence. Right. Speaking of which, not to bring up the election or anything, yeah. but no, he can't do it. Yes. Has any hit on any candidate, any personal hit? I mean, granted, so Marco Rubio was out of the race and everything, but he got so deep into Donald Trump's head with this line about how, you know what they say about people with short hands. Trump, it's like three weeks later, Trump is still in every long interview spending five minutes explaining that his hands are the right size. Well, and actually, he, the, he, the Washington Posting yesterday. Anything. At the, the Washington, Washington Posting, but yesterday he said, which I thought was great. He said, uh, the transfer said, like, eh, my hands are a normal size. Look at my hands; they're, they're normal. Actually, they're, they're large, which I loved. I love that. Like, it's a very Trumpian thing. It's like, wait a minute, nothing about me is normal. It's all, everything about me is bigger than you got. So I'm, my hands are bigger. Um, but I, I uh, yeah, but 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 last night. Um, I guess somebody on the Cruz campaign or or retweeted or something. This tweeting business is ridiculous. But somebody tweeted a picture of Melania Trump from no, her GQ. It wasn't GQ. the Cruz campaign. It was it – was, Well, wait, wait. It was Liz Mayer's anti-Trump. Right. It's important because it actually wasn't the Cruz campaign. It was an anti-Trump. Uh, that's what well, – I was going to get to that. Right. Okay. So, uh, so, so they, they tweeted a photograph of Melania Trump in some – you know, in her uh, GQ photo shoot. Uh, and then the Trump people got upset, and Ted Cruz said, hey, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. We had nothing to do with it. And then Trump then tweeted back, well, it better not have been you, something like that, or or I'm going to spill the beans on Heidi. Um, Cruz's uh, wife. Ted Cruz, Cruz's wife. Uh, I have two questions. Is, that the, is this the lowest moment in American politics in 150 years? And my second question is, what's up with Heidi? What's, what, what's the story? <laughs> 
Uh, okay, A, um, uh, it's the lowest moment until about 4 o'clock this afternoon when I'm sure it will be, <laughs> when I'm sure Trump will be something <laughs> to lower it still further. Um, so, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, the low point uh, that we can reach, uh, which is why I think returning to the top of the show, uh, the, the, the sweet meter of death is coming to seem like really the only possible option uh, uh, in November. Um, and, uh, I gather that what's up with Heidi is that she had postpartum depression. Can you believe it? Um, that, 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 that's the, those are the beans. I, fr- from what, what I've been able to gather, those are the beans. Hey, Can I say something? Yeah. Well, I, I just, um, so on the hands thing, right? So he talked about the hands in the Washington Post thing, right? And he, he talked about it for, um, um, you know, by, by my rough count, about 750 words. Um, and then the edit, this is the, one of the most amazing things in the entire transcript. The, Fred Hyatt tries to move it back to substance, right, which is allegedly, you're now hearing a lot of Trump supporters saying, well, you know, we got to, you have to realize that, that Trump's really about the issues, right, and policy. And so I just want to read, it's not quite as lyrical as uh, John's reading from Kundera, uh, um, but he says, but he's asked, he says, you, one of the editors says, you've mentioned it many times that this thing about uh, using tactical nuclear weapons against ISIS. Um, and then he says, you've also mentioned the risk of putting troops in the danger area. If you could substantially reduce the risk of harm to ground troops, would you use a battlefield nuclear weapon to take out ISIS? And this is Trump's response. Trump, I don't want to use, I don't want to start the process of nuclear. Remember, the one thing that everybody has said, I'm a counterpuncher. Rubio hit me. Bush hit me. When I said low energy, he's a low energy individual. He hit me first. I spent, I spent by the way, he spent $18 million worth of negative ads on me. That's putting it, and then it's muffled. And then the editor says, this is about ISIS. You would not use a tactical nuclear weapon against ISIS? And then Trump says, I'll tell you one thing. This is a very good-looking group of people here. Could I just go around so I know who the hell I'm talking to? <laughs> I mean, literally, they're asking him about using nuclear weapons, and he has no idea what to say or how to say it. And he's only comfortable talking about attacking Rubio and Bush. And clearly, Smod is the preferable alternative to this guy. It, it is. But you know, you know what else is preferable to Donald Trump, in my view? Hello, Fresh. <laughs> that is spectacular. That that is exactly that's professional level hosting. <laughs> At HelloFresh, we want to change the way people eat. And by the way, I don't want to. I don't want uh, people who support Donald Trump should also consider HelloFresh. Please don't, you know, blame HelloFresh for my transition there. Uh, they want to change the way people eat forever. We believe everyone deserves honest, natural, delicious, healthy food. We celebrate fresh ingredients and making magic in the kitchen. We know there's a chef in everyone. We think food brings people together. Good food allows us to live long. And great food lets us enjoy every bite of life. We are learning and growing every day. We never give up and we strive to make people happy. That's why we started 
the HelloFresh movement. So whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. From creating the recipes and planning the meals to grocery shopping and even delivering all of the pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh delivers right to your door so you can skip the trip. It currently offers customers a classic box or veggie box and will be launching a family box. Customers can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people. New recipes created every week. It's a meal kit delivery service. Makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. Freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They employ a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. Delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the coupon code GLOP when you subscribe. And that is HelloFresh. The new advertiser here on Glop. Now, um, yeah. this now, morning, now, I, mean, I, I actually got a Hello Fresh uh, ah. this week, and I cooked it. It was great. It was really good. They, they gave me th- I got three boxes, so I've only done one. Um, I got the veggie box because I wasn't sure when I would get to it, and I just figured vegetables would last longer. But it does, does come in a box, you know, packed in ice. It's really cr- incredibly convenient, and I, I was just struck by the fact that like everything. I'm going to sound like Louis C.K., but everything is so great now in a lot of ways. Like <laughs> people are figuring out ways to get you boxes of food that's fresh that you know aren't complicated to cook but are sort of different. And I mean, people are so that there's all these businesses sprouting up to make life sort of easier and more interesting and and uh, and simpler. And like even know, Uber, so the dark Uber. We're losing. We're losing to China. We're losing to North Korea. We're losing I, to Burkina Faso. Well, I guess what I mean all is. Lose. Well, I guess what I, well, we're not losing Burkina Faso. I, I, I can tell you. they got a long way to go. But I guess what I mean is everything is so good, but politics is horrible, corroded. Is it possible that you can't have everything? Like you can't have uh, you know this interesting um, economic boom where people are trying to cut, get you food in the proper way uh, and, and also have a, a, a politics that's not busted, or is, are we entering, re-entering kind of an early 19th century phase when it's all just terrible, except for the fact that the country's doing well? Well, I think we're, we're closer to the latter myself. The only problem, of course, is that in the early 19th century, the government did not have the reach that it has now and cannot distort uh, and, and, and degrade and make huge problems for um, right. The kind of economic growth that the country needs in order to get itself out of the kind of the doldrums uh, that it's in. And certainly, you know, some people talking about launching massive trade wars, uh, as an example, could uh, materially impact any hope of, uh-huh. you know, of, of the kind of hard charging economic growth that we need. You know, Paul Ryan, uh, as we as we take this, Paul Ryan this morning, the Speaker of the House, gave a gave a speech in which he lamented the uh, the destructive nature of politics and the brokenness of Washington, um, uh, in which he mentioned no one in particular. But uh, he, um, obviously it was aimed at Trump, but he didn't mention Trump. Um, but I found this speech kind of distressing because much of his example, the example that he gave in the course of it was how wonderful his mentor 
Jack Kemp had been and what Jack Kemp did and Jack Kemp and Jack Kemp and Jack Kemp. And it put me in mind of the fact that Jack Kemp sponsored the Kemp Roth tax cuts in 1979. That is 37 years ago. Now think about this. When Kemp was trying to sell the Kemp Roth tax cuts, his reference point was the JFK tax cuts of 1963, which was 16 well, every, years later, right? Every ta- now, yeah, every, yeah, right. Every tax cutter has, has, has gone back to JFK. But, right, but yeah. I'm saying that was 16 years before the Kemp-Roth tax cuts. 37 years before Jack Kemp in 1979, we were in the middle of World War II in 1942. And here <laughs> we are in 2016 – and the example, the only example that Paul Ryan can think to give of an inspiring leader uh, that isn't Ronald Reagan, because he was clearly deliberately not trying to mention Ronald Reagan, was Jack Kemp in 1979. Now, if that is not a mark of a kind of brokenness in our politics where everything that we can think of, where we can think of what worked or what we can cite or what was good or anything like that, is is in some you know misty past. I mean, Ryan himself was only I don't know eight years old or something, nine years old in 1979. I mean, you know, this is not healthy. It's a kind of all we have is this deep nostalgia for you know for a time past uh, when every political reality was different from the political right. reality we enjoy today, and the problems that were being solved are just markedly different. Uh-huh. You know, the size of the budget deficit in 1979, which was a huge political issue, was $6 billion. Six, that was the budget deficit, was $6 billion. Now it's, you know, that, that's five, five, billion. Or, or, or as I like to call it, five Bloombergs. <laughs> right. So what does this um, tell us? Just, I don't know what it tells us. It tells us that there's every reason to despair and nothing is good. And, you know, fortunately, we have HelloFresh and Harry's and Casper mattresses trying to do things without reference to American politics, because American politics is clearly going to be something we're going to have to transcend rather than hope but, that it's going to somehow. It's not a good thing. Help. It's not a good thing. Ultimately, shouldn't we transcend it anyway? I mean, this is obsession with Amer- American politics and all this stuff. It, it doesn't seem like that's part of the problem is that we've just created this sort of political obsession in the country so that we believe that all the problems and all the problems come from D.C. and all the solutions come from D.C. I mean, maybe maybe turning it into a clown show. I'm just floating this out now, and everybody recognizes it's a clown show. It isn't such a bad thing. Maybe it does need a little uh, stink on it, to, to, to use a political phrase. Um, maybe it needs that. The, 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 the pomposity of people in public service or whatever it is they call it is a little too much to take. Uh, you know, Absolutely. You, you, uh, there's, no, there's no one worse or more pompous than a United States senator. That's like the worst person on earth, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like they are. The worst. So, um, you know, I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not arguing for the current. What we, where's the current? You know, uh, apocalypse. I'm just saying that if if everyone in D.C. feels a little more humble about their place in the world and in the country, not in terms of power or any of that stuff, but just in terms of their their grandiloquent self regard, we're gonna we're gonna do the people's business. What BS? If they if they if they felt that if they if they they're taken down a peg. Maybe there's a silver lining here. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm well, saying. Okay, that's Jonah. Do you, buy, do you believe what I said? Wait, Jonah. Do you think I'm that's right or wrong? Oh, I, I, I I think it's plausible, but um, <laughs> you know, I 
don't think – look, the, 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 the problem is, is that this is one of the early stages of rationalization about Donald Trump is that you start saying, well, you know, the elites in Washington, they need this kick in the pants and, you know, and therefore – you know, and Trump is, is a giant middle finger to the, the establishment and therefore blah, 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 blah. And the problem with all of that is, is, is that's, a, that's a perfectly fine case for Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz meets – the minimal requirements necessary to be president of the United States. But it's not an argument for Donald Trump because Donald Trump is, as a matter of intellect, ideology, and character, unqualified to be president of the United States. And so I don't – what, what bothers me is these arguments about how, well, he'll just blow up the system and the system needs to be blown up. Maybe, but it'll also blow up a lot of other things. And it, is, it seems to me a crazy flyer, particularly since the guy um, is like – is is by far the most likely to lose against Hillary, right? Um, right. And so I, I get it, and I and I I'm certainly in favor of busting up the status quo, but I would rather do it in a way that's consistent with constitutional principles. The way, like you know, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is a big Tenth Amendment guy. He wants to you know get Washington out of people's lives, abolish the IRS, all that kind of stuff. Some of it is probably rhetorical boilerplate and fanciful, um, but I think some of it is sincere. But all of it is rational. In the context of, you know, taking on the establishment. I mean, Donald Trump can't talk about his vows of using tactical nuclear weapons um, uh, without it turning into a Saturday Live skit. And that is huh. that's scary stuff to me. You, well, you know, you know what's, what's you know scary? What I think? You... Wait, wait, I, I tell what? you what I think. Because, like, because cause I, 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 here's what I think. I think this is a really good looking crowd. <laughs> I think it's a really good looking crowd. Can we go around the room and just to say who we are, so I know who I'm talking to before I yes. answer? Well, I'm John Podhoritz in New York. Hi, uh, with me, as usual, Rob Long, also in New York, and Jonah Goldberg in Lake Tahoe. And we will be back with you next month to continue our fandom and appreciation for the sweet meteor of death, <laughs> the number one candidate for president in 2016. So thanks a lot, and talk to you next month. Get the slopes, Jonah. In short, <laughs> see you guys.
He referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. Uh, okay. Ricochet. Join the conversation.